Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. Good to be uh, opening God's Word this morning. My name is Mark, and uh, we are at the start of a new series. Often series at Red go for about four weeks. This is going to go longer, and there's going to be a lot in it. So uh, come on the journey. I encourage you to come along to this because it's going to be one of those ones where you sort of need to dig into the whole thing. And there's really two streams that have come together in this series that I felt God sort of uh, encouraging me to preach on. Um, the first is a sermon that I did uh, in October last year. And it was a singular sermon. And often you do a sermon and then you like move on and you're sort of done with the material and you're on to the next thing. But it's actually, I don't think I've ever had this before. I felt God say, go back and there's more to that. There's more to dig into. You're just starting something there. And it was a sermon called Platform to Pillars. I was on a plane flying from Perth to Melbourne and uh, there was a, I told the story at the beginning of this sermon about uh, this packed flight I was on and it was a quick turnaround. Uh, it was just coming out of COVID when everything was a bit sort of disrupted on flights. And uh, this woman sat across the aisle on my right and basically for the entire journey from Perth to Melbourne just complained to the flight crew the entire time. She complained about the entertainment platform system not working, the social media platforms she was on not working, and it just every 15 minutes, I could not think, and uh, it got to this sort of crescendo moment as we were approaching Melbourne, and she called the cabin manager, and she said two quite incredible things. The first thing she said, she said was, your job as a flight crew is to ensure that I can go to a place in my mind where I feel a state of relaxation and enjoyment and you have not done that. They had already given, promised her her money back, full money back for the flight, but that was not enough. She wanted to go to a mental state of enjoyment and pleasurable feelings, and that not had been, not been delivered by this flight crew. My expectations on a flight, first of all, we don't crash. <laughs> not being hijacked would be nice. Um, and maybe a biscuit, a cup of tea, that's good. But I realized, and I had this, I had this realization that she was seeing this flight very different than me. The second part of her little final complaint to the flight manager, flight cabin crew manager, or whatever they're called, was um, she said, and not only that, one of your stewardesses is not wearing her name tag. And I think this has been a deliberate decision because I believe I am victimized on this flight in a way no one else on this flight is. And this has been a targeted campaign against me. She didn't seem drunk or not in her right mind. She spoke with a very clear, well-spoken tone. And as I was sort of like taking this in as we landed in Melbourne, I was interpreting this and thinking about this. And what it dawned on me was, this woman was representing a kind of way of looking at the world that I come up with the term then, it's a platform mentality. She wanted her social media platforms, her entertainment platform systems working to serve her. But not only that, she saw the flight crew as a kind of platform just to serve her, not as human beings, not as a stressed flight crew who had just done this quick turnaround and now is flying across the continent, tired after a long day. Uh, they were there to serve her. So in a sense, she saw herself on this platform. And the word platform is appearing all around our culture at the moment. We talk about leadership as a platform. 
And so part of this is platforms, platform mentality. But we landed in Melbourne, and as you hit the ground, you get the little sort of uh, voice come over the uh, PA, and they said the classic, um, you know, welcome to Melbourne, where the time is whatever time it was. And the temperature was probably cold. And (laughs) then they did the, the, what Qantas do now, is just like an acknowledgement of country. You know, welcome to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And then this line just struck me. And I've heard it many times before, traveled around Oz. But in contrast to what I just heard, uh, the flight crew said, and we'd like to pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. Heard it before. But in this context, it was really different. So what this was, was an acknowledgement and an honoring of the indigenous elders. And after I got off the plane, I looked up what is an indigenous elder definition. An indigenous elder definition is someone who lives their life in a particular way to serve the broader indigenous community and to pass on the important traditions for the health of that culture. And it was just a massive dichotomy in my head. I'm like, hang on. On one hand, we'll have this announcement and we'll hear that and honour elders amongst indigenous Australians Yet then we're running on this other entire life script, which is like be in a platform society, live on a platform, have people serve you. And the two do not compute together. (laughs) And actually, the whole of society needs pillars. To live in a society where there are others serving and being pillars, elders in society, because that's why an elder is really a pillar. When someone who passes away and they've been a great servant to their community in a country town or they've volunteered in different community organisations or in a church, my family, at this point in time, as we go through what we're going through with Trudy's diagnosis, is so aware of when the bottom falls out. You need pillars, the people who have prayed for us. Just as I got up for the nine, an e- a text message came in. I got this my phone propping up my iPad here and it was from a a Christian leader who uh, I didn't know super well until recently, and he's literally just praying and praying and sending texts all the time. Uh, pillars, people bringing us meals, people serving. Pillars are really, really important. Yet the script we're running on actually knocks down pillars and doesn't create pillars. So this sermon series is about from platforms to pillars. But I want to do that, and the other sense I really felt God saying is to preach on Exodus. And I was in my head like, do I preach on Exodus or do platforms to pillars? But as I dug into Exodus, I realized that Exodus actually is the story of the journey of the people of God from really a platform mentality. The first pillars that appear, and pillars are a theme in Scripture, as you'll discover in this series, appear in the tabernacle in the wilderness where God's presence comes. Pillars are a unique architectural structure because they actually support And they create a space, need more than one. So those two themes are going to come together. We're going to do the book of Exodus. Uh, We're not going to preach through it verse by verse, but we are going to do a bunch of the key moments. So let's begin there. Let's begin in Exodus 1, verses 1 to 14. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. I made the 9am read this out loud and they struggled. <laughs> Hence why I'm doing it now. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. 
They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Pharaoh is king of Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in bricks and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now I just want to pull out here the first part. Because often in scripture, when you get to a genealogy, different names you can gloss over. You're trying to pronounce them. You can skip through. If you're trying to like read the Bible in a year, you're like fast forwarding through these bits. But there's actually tremendous clues in them. There's, there's a reason that they're there. They actually signify something. And particularly that first line, which talks about the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. At the end there, it says Joseph, who was already in Egypt. This linking of Jacob and his son Joseph, and particularly Joseph, is really, really key. This is like a callback. This is like a sample in a song. This is like a a hint, a hyperlink of something which you need to take note of. The story of Joseph is really key, and the reader, as as they would read this in the ancient world, would understand, hang on, take note of that. It was Joseph. Joseph was a young man sold into slavery who loses his freedom and is seemingly destined for a life of exploitation. This young man is prophetic. He receives dreams from God, but also experiences what many prophets and people hear from God and bring messages which don't necessarily bring comfort to the status quo experience, which is they're not welcome in their own towns. But for this man, it's not just that he's not welcome in his own town, he's not even welcome in his own family, and his brothers sell him to some traders who sell him to a foreign pagan nation, Egypt. But what the story of Joseph tells us is, with God and by obeying God, despite the difficult challenges of living faith in a foreign land, a pagan land, Joseph not only survives, he thrives and brings thriving to Egypt, to the land in which he's found himself exiled. So Joseph, in many ways, is the Exodus story, but in reverse. In the Exodus story, the people leave Egypt to head towards a promised land. Jacob is imprisoned and enslaved in his, uh, his own family and then goes to Egypt and thrives there. And what this tells us is a really big theme we're going to discover in this series. Is that with God, liberation from exploitation is not only possible, but it's one of the main themes of Scripture. It also tells us that in difficult terrains, where faith comes under pressure, where it's hard to be a believer, a life of obedience to God can be lived, which not only blesses you, but actually weirdly blesses the culture, which may even be pressuring you. Now I want to just bring our attention to another verse in this. So it says, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation that died 
sorry, let me start again. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all their generation die, that died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Now what's interesting about the first couple of chapters of Exodus is Exodus 1 and 2 doesn't really mention God. In a sense, it's absent from this part of the story. God is, is not mentioned by name. But again, if we listen to some of the hints and callbacks in this scripture of fruitfulness, multiplying, increasing in numbers, filling the land, we actually can hear hints of previous passages that keen readers at the time would have understood. We think of the way that God called Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to go forth and multiply. God's plan, as we discover in the book of Genesis, in the garden, is actually for Adam and Eve to have children, go forward and teach those children the way of God. And through that, God's strategy is then to fill the world with his glory as his people go out with his presence into the world. And so we see that despite what is happening in Egypt, that plan is operating in the background. That blessing is still in play amongst the Israelite people. We also see the mention of Joseph, that God has built upon the pillar of a life. The fact that under these difficult circumstances, the people of God are still multiplying, still increasing, still becoming numerous, is because of the pillar of a life of faithfulness that Joseph led. Yet, plot twist, setting the scene, something changes. It says this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. New pharaoh, new order. Now, orders are created from humans who attempt through politics, power, military, economics to bring control, dominion over chaos. This is what politics is ultimately about. And you see different orders and different times and civilizations have these moments of ascendancy, dominance, but often decline. And in the ancient world, this is often linked to the actual monarch. The monarch could be young, emerging at the top of their game, but then declining, maybe assassinated, and then it would all change and the order would shift. Now, this is the moment that we find ourselves, the arrival of a new pharaoh and a new order. And things are changing in Egypt. Now, what's interesting, too, is that Pharaoh is not named. We know some of the names through archaeology, people like Tutankhamun or Ramesses, these very famous pharaohs. But Pharaoh is not named in the Exodus story. He's just simply almost a figure. And what he represents is an order which has set itself against God. Now, what's interesting is this two posturing of these two things against each other, this throwback to the call of humans to bring order out of chaos, just as God created the world out of the chaotic, unformed world, which Adam and Eve were invited to into dominion to actually bring the chaos of the world, bring it under order, and then bring it to fruitfulness. But then you've got Pharaoh, who's also bringing an order, but this is an order that is not aligned with God's ways. And when our attempts to bring order into chaos are not aligned with God's ways, it actually can snap back upon us and create the very chaos that we're attempting to restrain. 
Now, as we examine order in Egypt, as we read these words, it leads us to a question as we bounce it back to the world in which we live. What is the order that we live under? Now, often the most powerful orders are actually unnamed. They're like asking a fish for a definition of water. They're unquestioned. They so dominate that every order must, alternate order or competing order must almost operate on their terms. But there's these moments when, like in Egypt, a pharaoh dies or there's a shift between eras or orders. And these are moments often of great instability, instability, but also moments of great opportunity. And that's what's happening in this book at this time in Exodus. But also I'm going to argue in this series that it's happening right now. You see, we live, I think our order is characterized by this concept of platform. And there's numerous, as we'll discover in this series, meanings behind what a platform is and how we use that word today. But it's symbolic, I think, of the order in which we live. But I just want to just look at one of them. And one thing I did is I began to research, like, what are different forms of platforms? Platforms are all over the place. One is a stage. We're going to look at that. But one of the most original platforms that you discover, starting in the ancient world, in lots of different cultures, is... The dais, the dais, the platform of power. Now, what's a platform? In its simplest definition, a platform is simply an architectural structure that elevates. It can be a train platform. But if you go back in history, historically, kings and queens would be seated on a raised platform called a dais. And this was an imperial symbol reinforcing a social hierarchy in which the wishes and the wills of the monarch was more important than those people who were seated lower than them. They were symbolically and literally placed above other people. So what is a platform? A dais. A platform a dais is a sign of power and exclusivity. Now, during the ancient Egyptian said festival, the pharaoh would use a dais in this really key symbolic way. And they would go to this pavilion place, and there's still some of these around, the ruins of them. And he would do what was known as the circuit of the platform. This would happen every 30 years. This is called a jubilee. If you know your scriptures, there's a jubilee in scripture. I'm not going to go into all of that. But the Egyptian jubilee was not a forgiving of debts necessarily. What it was was the jubilee said festival was the pharaoh would get on the platform and everyone would be there and they would start to do laps of the platform. And they would do like a circuit, like circuit training. And they would keep going. And people would cheer and they would raise their hands, like woo, like this. And what this did was, it was actually to symbolize something. The pharaohs like, physical prowess, their vitality, their ability to rule effectively. This is a big thing in Egypt. There was one person on the platform, and it was Pharaoh. But if you think about our time in which we live, this time of the platformed self, it's very different. The academics Ulrich Brand and Marcus Wissen have called our contemporary lifestyle the imperial mode of living. Noting that the way we live today requires all of these people to do all of these different things behind the scenes for us. The platforms, the person who delivers your Uber eats, the person who 
makes your clothes cheaply in another country to all of these things that happen that we don't think about that in many ways the 21st century person is weighted on hand and foot like a pharaoh, just that we don't see it. Compared to most humans throughout history, we don't make our own stuff. In fact, we all royally live upon a dais, even if you don't think of yourself living like that. And whereas in the pinnacle of older societies was the monarch, the prime unit of our society is the individual. The individual, at least in theory, is platformed above all other social forms. Our society tells us that we can all be fairer. We're all told that we can kind of live on a dais. And we can see this because our society struggles to think of a time in which an individual would limit their desires, choice, and self-expression for others. We can celebrate indigenous elders as we land a plane or an acknowledgement to country. But really, if you push comes to shove, we don't think that any individual should limit themselves for others. We'll celebrate the Anzac myth of those who gave their life for others. That's not how we're told to live our everyday lives. We really, at the end of the day, see that our wants, our needs, and our self-importance must be platformed. This is what every ad tells us. This is what school tells us. This is what the whole of our culture tells us. And this changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view others. But ultimately, I think reflecting on this theologically, our culture platform is ultimately about elevating our presence to be seen, to be affirmed, to be served, rather than creating a space for his presence, the presence of God. Now, what I don't want to do is make any direct correlation or direct link. Uh, I'll make a link, but I won't make a direct comparison between our lot and the lot of the Israelites living at this time. But I do think that there is an interesting thing that we can learn from this story. Now, if you read on, there's a really interesting little detail. And it says this in the script. Uh, sorry, in this, in this text. It says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Now, this is really key. Joseph, the story begins with Joseph was someone who goes to Egypt, gets this role in the aristocracy, serves God, and brings flourishing both for his life through obeying God, but also for Egypt. But the new pharaoh, the new order that's come to power does not know who Joseph is. This is a breakdown of relationship, a breakdown just in memory of relationship, but it's a breakdown in relationship. And I want to argue that this breakdown in relationship is one of the key things that marks the order under which we live. Now, Mark Fisher, the English writer, uh, blogger, made this interesting comparison about a change that's happened in most of our lifetimes. He says, if you look at crime movies, the way that we talk about crime movies has changed. And he compares the 1972 movie, The Godfather, which is about a family that come from a small village in Sicily, migrate to the United States, and are involved in organized crime. 
Now, what's interesting about this story, it's a story about crime, but really it's a story about a family and it's a story about relationships. Heaps of the movie is about the dynamics of the brothers, sisters, fathers, sons, cousins, friends. A lot of the movie's sitting around tables eating food. It's a deep, connected society. There is the familial connections to each other. There's the nuclear family connections. There's the extended family connections. There's the Italian-American connections. There's the Sicilian connections. There's a little village in Sicily connections. This is a world of deep, connected relationships. And the drama is these people pursuing this life of crime and how it, it, it actually tugs at those relationships. Famous scenes of betrayal. And so this is a world, 1972, of deep relationships, which most societies throughout history have had that deep level of deeply connected relationships. Fisher, though, compares this then to 1994, a couple of decades later, and things have changed. He compares this to the Michael Mann movie about crime, Heat. Instead of this deeply connected world, back to Sicily, families, cousins, friends, Husbands, wives, associates working together deeply because they grew up together. It's about crime, gangs. They're not families. They're simply people who don't know each other, who come together to do these jobs. It's also got Pacino and De Niro in it, but it's a totally different environment. It's this faceless Los Angeles. No one knows each other. Everyone's alone. And the title, Heat, comes from this line in the movie where... Robert De Niro says, he was told in prison by this guy. It's interesting, a lot of the relationships are actually from prison, not from family. He says, have nothing in your life that you can't walk out on in 30 seconds as soon as you see the heat or the police coming. And part of the theme of the movie is, yes, this is a code for criminals, but in a sense, it's making this commentary that this is where society is going to. The characters live in these very modern Historyless houses, they're often alone. There's no relationship. And it makes you think, what happened? Well, what happened was a society-wide race to platform the self at the expense of relationships. Greater platform, but less relational flourishing. More freedom for the self, but a loss of meaning and connection. Now, this has been going, and I think Pete captures this in 1994, and it's continued, and it's intensified. But I want to argue that in this series, I'm going to argue this over several weeks, that in the last maybe five years or so, this has clicked over into a whole new, even more intense phase that I think is actually now breaking apart. For the platform mentality is not working. And a lot of this quest about for the individual to be freed actually has moved from liberation now to exploitation. It's no longer about freeing us, but using us. We're no longer oppressed by what we should and shouldn't do. The code of the Godfather is what you should and shouldn't do. Never go against the family. But now in the world of disconnection of platform, we're more oppressed by all the things we could be doing. We look at other people's lives. There's this constant sense that you're not living up to this great expectation. In the past, if you failed, at least you failed with others together. But increasingly now, when you fail and you can't live up to the life script that's constantly put before you, it's actually your fault. We were promised a platform, but now we're being crushed by a platform. 
Now, Exodus reads, starting at verse 6, this, and we see this sense of this breakdown. Then a new king to whom Joseph knew nothing came to power in Egypt. This breaking of relationship, really, really key. And then we see this domino effect onwards in the text. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. They put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. The people who are meant to build a dwelling place for God are actually building houses to benefit others and they get no benefit themselves. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now the Israelites were exploited by the very order under which they had once flourished. As I have thought back to the sermon that I preached in October last year, I listened to it, which is weird, listening to a sermon that you've done. You forget everything that you've written. Sometimes you actually minister to yourself, which is really weird. And it was good. (laughs) Did the story well, points well, chef's kiss. (laughs) But I think there was something missing. I thought about the story I told about the woman on the plane and I realized that actually it's easy to point the finger. Here's this woman, an embodiment of the selfishness of the day and we love those viral videos of some person carrying on and being an absolute plonker and selfish and watch the viral videos and send them to other people, maybe because also it's a bit close to home. I've told that story in that sermon But I began to think about that woman differently. I began to think of her like the man in the story we find in Mark 5, possessed by a horde of voices and demons in his head that names itself as Legion, alone, isolated, striking out at himself. And what's interesting is in that story, Jesus comes and Jesus delivers this man, casts the demons into a herd of pigs which run off a cliff. And you would think that everyone's going to be excited. The guy's delivered this beautiful image of him sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. But it's weird, the story. There's something creepy about this land of gatherings. Jesus goes out of Jewish territory into Gentile territory. We can see that by the history of the name and this region, but also the pigs that are non-kosher that the people are keeping. The people are not happy that Jesus has delivered this, this man. You would think you'd be happy. This guy's been bashing people. He's so tormented. As you read deeper, and I'm not going to do a whole exposition on this passage, but you begin to realize that it's not just the man who's possessed. The man is a cipher, a signal, of the, the, is an extreme version of the deeper possession which actually oppresses that land. So it's not just about legion, the man possessed by legion. It's actually about the land of the Gadarenes is also possessed. 
And I wondered if actually this woman on the plane is a bit like that. We can point the finger and I can give the story and people, you know, it's shocking. It was shocking for me. But actually this woman is maybe just a more extreme example of the cultural script and the order under which we are living. What if we live in our own land of the Gadarenes? And what if actually this order based on platform is actually oppressing us? It's not just something which we should try and avoid as believers and don't get sucked into and I've fallen for a bit lately and this thing that you just got to avoid. What if it's actually a spiritual oppression? And I've thought about how I've tried to at different times meet this and I've written on this, I've preached on this for years. I've advocated things like spiritual formation and getting our habits right so we don't get seduced by this stuff. And I still believe in all of this stuff. But actually, what if this is spiritual oppression? And so, yes, we need formation, but also what if we actually need deliverance? What if we need to find deliverance? Because we, like the Israelites, live under Pharaoh an order which has set itself against God and his way. That's actually pushing us further apart Can I just say, when I started, I've been in ministry now a few decades, when I started, there'd be a small percentage of people in your community who may be struggling with real loneliness and disconnection. Every year, pastoring, it gets worse. The stories of people not connecting, of becoming more alone. Single people, people married. The pressure on relationships. You see it everywhere. It's like the movie Heat. We are drifting further and further apart. We've been told this story. We're not told to have 30 seconds to walk on anything you love because the cops could be coming, but we're actually told, like, live loosely because there could be this fantastic opportunity ahead of you and this thing to walk out on. Don't commit. Commitment phobia. But I think what we're seeing, and I think we've seen this in the last five years, is that the promises that if you did that, you'd have this wonderful life, no one's believing it anymore. We had a church visit us uh, two weeks ago from the States. They came out and spent some time with us. And one of them said something that just captured me. They said, increasingly, we are dealing with people who feel that the promises have been broken by culture. That what they were offered has not been delivered. And so I'm seeing this differently now. It's not just about formation. It's about exploitation. So we need to listen to this story because this story is a story of deliverance from exploitation. And I also thought like maybe uh, is the solution to a radical individualism in our culture then just more individual ways that you can do these little Christian habits to make your life better? Again, I'm not having any Christian habits. I'll preach them. But maybe we need something bigger and stronger that we find in the text here. And this is where I think it's really important to remember that call back to Joseph in the opening lines of Exodus. Pharaoh's forgotten Joseph's memory, but we don't have to. When we go back in the story to Genesis, at the end of Genesis, where we encounter Joseph, after being sent into exploitation by his own brothers, Joseph is reunited with them. And what's interesting, Joseph doesn't just seek revenge He tells them in Genesis 45, verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by what? A great deliverance. There is a remnant people of God 
in a difficult environment, in an order which is anti-God. But out of that remnant will come a great deliverance. And how does this remnant get birthed? Well, get birthed because Joseph is a pillar. One man obeying God, becoming a pillar in a pagan land. And it says this in Genesis 49, 22, as Jacob prays over his son he's now been reunited with. He says this, Joseph is a fruitful vine, the exploited one, the pressured one, the one living far away from everything he knows has actually become a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine near a spring. His branches climb over a wall. This echoes that great keystone verse of Psalm 1, which shows a model of the flourishing life with God. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, the order of his day. Or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but instead who meditates on his law day and night. God's way, God's law, God's instruction, God's Torah. Which then yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. Whatever they do prospers. If you're feeling a sense of connection with the exploitation of which I speak, perhaps it's not exploitation, perhaps it's just exhaustion, exasperation that we've gotten here. This verse is also spoken over you. Jacob speaks this as a blessing. So I just want to just end with three things real quick. This is the starting point of a journey we're going to be going on in this series. We're going to walk with the people of God out of oppression in Egypt into deliverance. But I just want to say these three things. First of all, God wants to deliver you from the orders of the day which oppress and exploit you. And I'm going to dig in more how I think we're being oppressed and exploited. But I just want to say God wants to deliver you from that. Second, God is inviting you to build your life as a pillar, as a pillar. The early church spread through God building these elders, these people in these pagan towns where almost everyone in the city was against them. And yet they lived their lives different to the world. They were citizens of the kingdom of heaven, not of the world. And through following God, these people weren't perfect. They made mistakes. The scriptures, the New Testament is filled with a church which messes up and stuff's going wrong and and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, it's people obeying God and God creates pillars and we stand on the shoulders of those pillars that have gone for 2,000 years before us. And God wants you to be part of that story. He doesn't want you to build a life where you can walk out on anything in 30 seconds. He actually wants you to build your life into a pillar. And third, he wants us. A pillar by itself is not really a pillar. It's just the memory of a building that once fell down. He wants us as the church to be built into pillars. Pillars only work if there's a number of them. And pillars, if you think about them, they create the edges of a building. And what they do is create this space. And the story of Exodus is the story of people who are living under exploitation, but then leave that behind in this great deliverance. They walk around the wilderness. It's tough. It's hard. It's unknown. It's uncertain. I feel that. I got off a plane two months ago or something now, and my new reality was a world in which I could not assume what the future of my family would look like. The journey of 
cancer that we're on as a family is one of radical uncertainty. That sort of happened during COVID. And I learned that. I bought a planner and didn't fill it out. But where we're walking now, where Trudy walks in our family, is, is one of walking with the presence of God in radical dependency. But what I realized is in the midst of that, you encounter the presence of God. About two weeks ago, I just had this sense I was pushing in and walking through this journey and doing so many things. I just felt off, weirdly off. <laughs> Couldn't work it out. Things off. Things which seemed easy off. But Friday night, I sat there at 10 o'clock at night and had a really big cry. <laughs> I've not had a big cry for a while in the midst of this journey. But what I was struck by, as I wept, I felt his presence in this incredibly close way. And what I felt was that you encounter his presence often in the harshest wildernesses, sometimes veiled in tears. And I think the journey that God has us on is one where we're walking away. It's not just red, it's not just you, it's the church at the moment. There's this deplatforming happening where churches try to compete with the world and be a platform and do platform like the world does it. And it's honestly just been a disaster. But I think what this story tells us is that God wants to build his church into pillars which will create space for his presence. And what that says is he wants us to be his dwelling place. So this is the journey we're on. We get to walk this with the people of God to, you know, in the story of Exodus again as we remember this story. But it's also an invitation that he has for us now. And what I'd love to do is we're going to end now. But we haven't taken communion yet. I'd love as we start this series to actually, as we respond, we're going to worship. Actually, band, come up now. And if you think about the people of God, we're going to preach on this in a few weeks. But the night before they left, God invited them to take a meal. A meal is really powerful. A meal, in its biblical sense, is a reconnection. We, as humans, connect deeply over food. Family, friends, hospitality with people who may become family and friends happens around a meal. And the night before, Israel is invited to step away from oppression and exploitation and head into the wilderness. They're invited to take this Passover meal. It's a Passover meal of redemption. It's a Passover meal that will point forward to Jesus Christ who brings redemption and deliverance. Jesus does it with his disciples the night before the crucifixion. So I just thought we big on communion. We take communion every week in our church pretty much. But I just thought, why don't we do this as a meal? 
as part of this invitation to step away from exploitation, to step away from a world order that tells you to live through the platform of self. That's actually crushing us. And to actually begin the journey. You don't have to be all there right now. It's a process. Being an elder or a pillar emerges from processes happening within. Now let's take this communion as a symbol like, yep, I'm packing. Maybe I'm packing light. And I'm going to begin a journey with God into being delivered by him into the purpose he has for us and his church. Let's stand. And as you're ready, now often we all come forward and we take it and it happens instantaneous. But I just encourage you just to maybe pray first. Pray and maybe leave some stuff behind. Maybe reflect on how you've been living as a platform without realizing from the platform mentality. Maybe some of the pain you feel, the disconnection of this moment. Maybe that desire to be delivered. Maybe the desire for others to be delivered from that. Meditate on that. Bring it before the Lord. And when you're ready over this little bracket of worship, then come have your farewell meal before the journey begins. Thank you.